Good evening, and welcome to Nighty Night with Rabia Chaudhry. Bedtime stories to keep you awake. I'm DJ Lubell, the show's producer. Tonight's episode, we continue our story behind the story series, where Rabia sits down with true crime expert Amber Hunt. Please enjoy. Hi, and welcome back to the special series of Nighty Night in which we explore the stories behind our narrative stories, which I know you guys all love. And once again, I'm letting you know to stay subscribed. We're going to be back with an entire season of creepy stories this fall. Like, that's the right season for those stories. But in the meantime, I am loving having guests on to talk about um, just the crazy cases that have inspired these stories. And I am so, so excited about today's guest. I cannot tell you, this is a crossover dream come true for me. So I'm going to do an intro and then welcome her on. Today, we are joined by Amber Hunt. Amber is part of the Pulitzer Prize winning team at the Cincinnati Inquirer, where she works as a reporter and is the host of the amazing podcast, Accused. Accused is an award-winning true crime serial whose third season is underway. Amber's latest podcast, however, Crimes of the Centuries, is in its second season and was listed as one of 2021's top 10 podcasts by Rolling Stone. And honestly, it's that podcast, which I can't wait to talk to her about, which is why I really wanted her on, and you'll understand why when we talk about that show. And... I like Amber. I love Amber. She's I consider her a friend. Um, and we've had some really interesting and odd crossovers in our podcast a few times. So please welcome Amber onto the show. Amber, hi. Hi, thank you so much. Um, just just so you know, I screwed you up and I, I have that the third season is underway. Fourth season came out. Oh, see, the bio needs to be updated. That, I did, <laughs> and then I delete anyway. So I'm reporting out the fifth season. That's amazing. Which is interesting. It's the first time I get weekly phone calls from a prisoner. Oh, okay. You're reporting the fifth season right now. You're working on it right now. When I does am. that come out? Uh, when I finish it. Which, which is <laughs> I love amaz- that. I know it's the amazing part of the job I have right now is that I report until I feel like I can tell this story. I've never really had a job like that. <laughs> so it was like deadline focus, but I think it's awesome. But, um, and you know, look, accused was my introduction to you and your work. And I've been following you ever since because I mean, it, it's such an incredible show. Your reporting is incredible. But when crimes of the centuries began and what, it began in 2021 or 2020? It was a pandemic baby, so... It was a pandemic, yeah. I guess When did it come out? <laughs> it's been like 21. a year and a half, right? Or so? Yeah. <laughs> Listen, I lost my mind. First of all, it's on uh, one of my favorite networks, with the Obsessed Network, and we've had Patrick Hines on to talk about his network as well. Um, but also, it is such a fantastic show. So just tell my audience a little bit about the show and what inspired it. Actually, what inspired it was me freaking out when they sent us home for the pandemic... You remember when we all went for like two weeks? Ha ha. So they sent us home and the newspaper that I work for, we were struggling. I mean, all newspapers were struggling. So there were these periods of furloughs. And so I would be put on a a week-long furlough once a quarter. And all of this was making me feel very unstable. Mm. (laughs) And so I started recording this thing in my closet and it began with me going into the archives and just really digging into the 1918 epidemic so that I could prepare myself 
for what was probably going to happen then. And just seeing all of these headlines next to those stories about these huge criminal cases that I had never heard about prompted me to to start thinking, okay, you know, maybe there could be some value in going back and looking at these. We have all these cases in society right now where we're like, oh my God, this is the hugest thing ever and I'll never forget it. And in, you know, 10 years, nobody's going to remember that case except a handful of people. And so I wanted to spend some time digging into those types of cases that really resonated at the time, but for whatever reason didn't stick the way that like Manson stuck. I think there's been so much overlap between current events and what I'm researching that I I am a much smarter person now that I've started doing it because, you know, in history class growing up, my eyes would kind of glaze over. I didn't really connect with people as actual humans, um, you know, when I would read about these old stories. And for some reason, doing it through the prism of a crime story makes it um, much more relatable to me. And then understanding, you know, if it's a case that happened during prohibition, you have to understand like why things were the way they were. So you have to understand right. why there was this movement for not drinking and, and who was behind that. And I wish I had done this at the start of my career or had access to something like this because I would have been a better rounded journalist earlier. Well, I mean, I, Look, I completely understand, like, something resonating with you because it's (laughs) through the lens of true crime. Um, I I operate the exact same way. But one of the reasons I wanted you on specifically for this episode, although a number of our stories are based on, I think, cases that kind of could qualify for your your series. But this one in particular, I thought, and and you haven't covered this, have you? Um, No, I haven't. I could. You could. Afterward, I was like, you know what? Maybe I just put a couple of years in between us. Yeah, I, well, because there's no reason. You know how it is. Like people who, people who consume true crime, they'll get. They'll like. That's a really interesting story. I want to find more about it. And I'm sure you, being an investigative journalist, could probably dig up a lot more. Um, there's there's probably a lot more behind this story that I still don't know about. But also, I want to say this. One one of the things I love about Crime the Century is that it proves my. Th- theory and my thesis that people have always been obsessed with true crime. This is not a new obsession. We hear this all the time that it's an explosion of true crime and it's like screwing us all up. No, people have always been fascinated by crime and true crime. That's just what I believe. So, Oh no, that is a hundred percent true. Am I allowed to like (laughs) bladder? Um, Yeah. There there was a case that one of the very first well-documented murder trials in American history is, is one where the defense lawyer was Alexander Hamilton, assisted by Aaron Burr. That's how old this was. Mm -hmm. And there were newspaper articles at the time talking about how people's interest in this case and women especially being drawn to it was a sign of moral decline and all of this. (laughs) It's, it's, always been this way. It's just a matter of the medium. We got to have a separate conversation. I'm, I'm going to start hosting like Twitter spaces or something where we talk about like, what is, why, why do we get this repetitive, ridiculous, like strange critical analysis of true crime that doesn't hold any water? Anyway, um, whole separate thing, but it, all right. So we're going to get into today's story behind the story. And the episode we're looking at today is the one that was called Undying Hunger. It was our third episode when we first launched Nighty Night. But the story that inspired it is the story of the starvation doctor, Linda Perry Hazard. 
Have you heard that name before at all, Amber? Not before this, no. Okay. I had not either, frankly. I had never heard of this woman before, but my goodness, what a fascinating story. But before we get into it, I just want to quickly note the sources we have used to get the research on today's episode. A lot of sources, Wikipedia, which we all love, Starvation Heights, Oakland Tribune, The Oregon Daily Journal, Wellington Daily News, Smithsonian Magazine, Kitsap Sun, The News Tribune from Tacoma, The Tacoma Times, Wichita Eagle from Kansas, The Butte Miner from Montana, Guardian, The Nutrition Journal, ForgottenMinnesota.com, Minneapolis Daily Times, The Minneapolis Journal, The Minneapolis Tribune, and The Star Tribune Minneapolis. So very well-sourced episode today. <laughs> All right, so let's talk a little bit about uh, Linda. I'm going to call her Linda. I don't, I don't feel like calling her Dr. Hazard, and it'll be clear in a few minutes why. Now, her story begins in 1868, which is when she was born, and kind of falls, I think, I feel like squarely within the time period that you cover on uh, Crimes of the Centuries. She was the eldest of seven children. Now, ordinarily, that might be kind of a throwaway fact, but I'm going to circle back to that all the way at the end of the episode because there's something about that that really caught my eye. And also, by the way, before we get into this, it would be really kind of inauthentic of me to talk about like the issues in this case if I didn't talk about the fact that I have a book coming out this year that's called Fatty Fatty Boom Boom. And it's a memoir about food, fat, and family because I have had a, I'm 40, I just turned 48. I've had a, 48-year struggle with weight. And I wrote this book to talk about my entire life's experiences around weight and food. So the themes in this story, there's so many things that jump out to me, and I can understand how she was able to do what she did with these people. And so anyhow, this is not a shameless plug for the book, but I have to mention that because I want people to know like that personal connection I have, I feel to the story. So Linda, when she was 18 years old, she got married, she had two kids, and then she gets divorced. And she says that her husband abandoned her in 1898. Now, so for a few years, she's off the radar. And then in 1901, she kind of jumps onto the scene. And I thought this was interesting that in this three-year period, she's like a single mom with two kids. She kind of reinvents herself, right? And that's something that I know a lot of people who go through a divorce do, myself included, especially if you need to like support yourself, right? She shows up in, and I believe this is the first public reporting that's mentioned her name. There's an ad in the Minneapolis Journal in December 1901 in which she's referred to herself as Dr. Linda Burfield Perry, suggestive therapeutics. She treats all nervous disease in men, women, and children. She wasn't a medical doctor at all, but she said that she was an expert on fasting and enemas, and she believed it was like how you reset and rest the digestive tract, flush toxins out of your body, cure anything that's ailed anyone, including cancer and paralysis. And she really did believe that food was the root, that too much food was a root of illness and disease. So there's an article that comes out just a couple months later. So she puts this ad in the paper in December. By February, two months later, she's writing articles. Like, you know, she has become a pundit almost in a way. But her first article is not actually about the food stuff. She talks about visiting slums in various cities, how Minneapolis has the worst slums, and all these vices plague the city. 
too much drinking, saloons, wine rooms, debauchery. So it was like an op-ed. And in it, she says that, you know, reform has to come from home and mothers need to be roused to accept this as their solemn duty. And a mother must teach her children purity. And it's interesting because this connection to purity and her belief in basically starvation, I think are very closely connected. And we'll see in other ways how throughout today's episode. So now she's like a pundit. And I thought this was really interesting because in today's times, I mean, when when I'm asked by like young people, how do I get my name out there? I'm like, you gotta start writing. You gotta start like <laughs> telling people I know a thing or two and get your name out there. I guess they were doing the same thing back there. Yep. So a few months later, this is I think where she gets her kind of big break. Not a few months, it's like six months later, in August of 1902. And so, but 1902, is this during prohibition or do you remember the time period of prohibition? That is before Prohibition. Before it begins. Okay, so yeah. people are drinking it up right now. Well, there is, so th- it, there's a movement afoot. So I wouldn't say they're drinking it up because there's there's a lot going on in society where um, alcohol is being blamed for many ills. Mm, okay. So she gets her big break in August of 1902. The Minneapolis Tribune publishes an article called Get Health by Fasting. And it tells the story of this person from Philadelphia, a Mr. Tuthill, who had been apparently paralyzed for a number of years and had been obviously treated by lots of doctors and claimed that he was completely cured after doing a 20-day fast with no food whatsoever under the advice of Dr. Linda Perry. I thought this was really interesting. It is. Because, I mean, first of all, it's the Minneapolis Tribune, which is, I would think, a credible source, right, Amber? Uh, yes, <laughs> generally, I'm, I'm waiting for an angry letter already. Uh, no, yes, that that was a mainstream newspaper even at the time, and like this is not the Enquirer. I'm mean, like a type of you know or a tabloidish paper. So I feel like like what do you think? Do you think this that he was just like a setup? Because how is this possible? If something happened with him, it had nothing to do with not eating for 20 days. But we hear those kinds of testimonials nowadays all the time as it is. But my gut would be that he was probably a plant. Uh, yeah. This woman was wily, as we'll see. Now, she she was also referred to in the same article as the high priestess of starvation. And there were other articles written about her. Things took a turn, however, not too much later, like a few months later in later in that year, November 1902, when apparently she killed a patient. This would be the first of many patients she killed after a 30-day fast. And it wasn't just that she killed this person, but it apparently also that she had taken the patient's jewelry. Um, but no, like the patient had died, but no charges were brought because, I mean, the patient was not there against their own will, right? Yeah. This is where things to me get like really interesting because you've got somebody who is purporting to be a doctor with people in their care and those people trust them and they are signing up for this treatment. And then it's a, it's an ingenious setup because when or if, but more often when the person doesn't fare well, the quote unquote doctor is able to say, well, she came to me because she was sick. I can't right. cure everything. <laughs> right. And that's what she said. She said, well, she died because she was sick, not because of the fasting thing that I did. She was, you know, like it was, she was too far gone <laughs> type of thing right. already. Never mind that she was able to like walk before she came in, you know, and yeah. then quickly wasn't able to walk because it turns out food is good for walking and yeah. breathing and, and organs. And also having the cognitive ability not to sign over your assets to this quack. 
exactly. I think it's worth noting, by the way, that she um, Hazard, actually, I guess at the time she's still Perry. Perry wasn't the first person to tout this. She she had been trained in it by some other hack. So there's this like groundswell of people sort of interested in this and considering how primitive real mainstream medicine was at the time, it probably sounded plausible. You know, I mean, at the time they were looking into treating people with tinctures and, you know, you might have strychnine in your cabinet because a small dose of it is supposed to help with headaches. Mm. So it's... A little bit of arsenic never hurt anyone. Right? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, like, there there was... Absolutely, this didn't happen in a vacuum, right? Like, there was, like, this 15, 20-year period in which, like, this movement kind of emerged and took off for a very long time that was all about diet control. Actually... Come to think of it, I feel like we're still maybe in it <laughs> um, in some ways. Um, no, but, I think we absolutely are. That's one of the things that's so fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, calorie in, calorie out. Like I have been, you don't know how many people in my life, in my personal life have said to me, Robbie, you're just fat because calorie in, calorie out. Like you just got too many calories. You know, like you just don't know. It's just a self-control thing. And science tells us now that obviously it's not just calories. I mean, it's how we metabolize calories. Every calories, calories are different, right? Anyway, the point is the message that all you have to do is just starve yourself, like definitely still exists. But so she does trip up by killing this patient, but she she kind of like ups her game because she gets remarried in 1903. That's when she marries this guy named Hazard. Samuel Hazard becomes a hazard. And it's like soulmate, you know, another con artist basically joins her and her efforts. And they move to Seattle. And apparently Washington State had this loophole where if you were an alternative medicine practitioner, you could actually get a license to practice medicine. And so now she's like Dr. Hazard, like Dr. Doctor. And... 1908 is when she kind of really takes off in a very international way. She publishes a, it's like a pamphlet, Fasting for the Cure of Disease in 1908, and she starts working on opening up a sanitarium. Have any of your episodes like covered the nightmares that were sanitariums? I have looked at the institutions for the feeble-minded, which overlap, but they are, they are different and, uh, it is. It, Wait, is a, that was that different than like, for example, what they called an insane asylum or psychiatric? Those asylum? also overlapped. So if you were poor or crazy, you were sent to the same place. Um, and also, if they decided you were stupid, you were you know sterilized. Um, so all of these things are happening at the same time, and these sorts of institutions where you go and you disappear are are pretty common. Mm. Well. So the kind of sanitarium she opened was the one that people voluntarily went to, and oftentimes they were expensive. And these were like called, thought of as wellness centers, which and retreats, and you know, which also still exist. And they it attracted a lot of wealthy people. Now you had mentioned that you know there is some reporting that she studied under this other doctor who was well known at the time, Edward Hooker Dewey, but she might have just made that up. He was an actual MD. And he wrote a book, this is really interesting to me, The No Breakfast Plan and the Fasting Cure in 1908. But he he wasn't like Hazard crazy. Hazard was like, you're just not going to eat, period. All that Dewey argued for was eliminating breakfast and having your dinner and then eliminating breakfast so your body is in an extended state of fast, which is intermittent fasting as we know it today. Right. Right. And I'm sure you're aware intermittent fasting is a huge 
it's a fad for some, but it's become like very much a way of life for a lot of people in my life that I know who love it and swear by it. And I am like a week into it right now. And we'll see how that goes. <laughs> I was going to say, how are you feeling? I feel okay. But the thing is, you know, I'm Muslim. I, for 30 days a year, we do Ramadan fasts. And I'll be honest, there's a lot of things that I discover. I'm like, that I'm like, oh no, this is not something new. This is just something that you're pretending you discovered, but actually existed in other cultures for a long time. Exactly. <laughs> Ramadan fasting is 100% intermittent fasting. And what another interesting thing is like, there's two ways to intermittent fast. You can do your daily, like extended fast. What I like about this, I can eat whatever I want, but it's just after three or 4 p.m. is when I start eating and then I eat until I sleep. Or you can do something called, in the world of intermittent fasting, a 5-2 fast in which for five days a week you eat just as you normally would, and two days a week you do like a 24-hour fast. What's interesting to me is that there is a 1,500-year-old Muslim prophetic tradition in which the prophet Muhammad, who everybody's like heard that name, he fasted two days a week. And so growing up, we always heard the prophetic tradition is to fast two days a week and the other five, like give your body a break, and the other five days you can eat whatever you want. And I'm like, holy moly, you took that from us too. But anyway, um, <laughs> So I want to talk about a couple of the other figures that were around at the time because of their kind of connection to current times. And again, this is like the context of what Linda Hazard was working in and why she was able to do what she did for so many years. There was another doctor named Dr. Paul Bragg, and he believed in doing water fast to purify the body. And he, even though there were people obviously in the medical community who thought he was crazy, he actually became very successful he, um, his, him and his daughter, who was a PhD, published a book in 1970s. This man lived forever called The Miracle of Fasting Proven Throughout History for Physical, Mental, and Spiritual Rejuvenation. And I do want to give them a nod for actually like recognizing that historically fasting has been a thing. But this is the family that founded the Bragg Apple Cider Vinegar Company. And they believe that, you know, putting apple cider vinegar in the water was good for fasting. And here's the thing. Apparently, the daughter, Patricia Bragg, is 92 and still alive and kicking and doing quite well and still fasting. So they believed it promoted longevity. But the most popular sanitarium of the time, and I had no idea about this. I'd never heard about this before, was the Battle Creek Sanitarium, which was founded by John Harvey Kellogg. And we all that know that Kellogg. name. Yep. Yeah. Did you know... About the origins of the cornflake? I did. Oh, but so I would. used to live in you Michigan. Would. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Do you want to tell us about it then? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, I want to hear you. But it, so when you're when you're from, it's like everywhere I've lived, there's always been characters that are sort of larger in li than life from the area, and the sanitarium story is fascinating. But go ahead. No, no, but so I, I want to hear like what you kind of grew up hearing. It doesn't, it doesn't still exist, does it? Not, no, no. Um, he was so Kellogg had it. I don't know the origin of the the actual cornflake. What I know is that he was a Seventh Day Adventist. They have some pretty strict beliefs governing food, and he also believed in abstinence. That's right, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he did. He, he felt like basically any anything that brought joy um, <laughs> also brought disease. Oh, oh, interesting. That yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that was the connection there. So, 
And then you got the seven deadly sin connection, right? Like lust and gluttony. And so food and sex, um, these things were just like, they led to sin and disease. I mean, like that's like the very yes. simplified flowchart here for him. He So Kellogg was an actual doctor, and like a, like a medical doctor, but all of his treatment. So he started this sanitarium, which was like the biggest sanitarium. It was like the biggest wellness center of its time. It attracted like just hundreds and hundreds of patients, very wealthy ones. And but all of his treatments were rooted in dietary and sexual abstinence. And apparently, so he himself was a vegetarian. He was married for like 40 odd years and says he was celibate throughout his marriage. Holy moly. Him and his wife adopted like 40 kids, though. I was going to, I'm a little curious if his wife was also celibate throughout, <laughs> throughout the marriage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think he might have, well, we have no anyway. idea. Maybe, maybe she was like a really devout Seventh-day Adventist as well. Um, it's really fascinating to me because like Muslims are so the opposite of like sexual, like they're like the whole point of marriage is to stop constant sex. Um, but anyway, another, that's the other end of the pendulum. So, but here's the thing though. I mean, like, you know, it's not like these ideas are, are again, kind of, they just emerged out of the late 1800s out of nowhere. Like this is, these are ancient ideas, right? Like the the father of medicine, Hippocrates, who he recommend like this this goes back so far that patients abstain from food and drink to cure ailments. All the religious major religious traditions have fasting, like I've already mentioned, like the Muslim kind, but like there are Hindus fast, Buddhists fast. There are six days of fasting in the Jewish tradition. I think there's fasting in the Christian tradition, but I mean, all I know about is like Lent. And Lent just seems like you give up one thing or something. I don't think it's like the kind of fasting we do where it's like you just don't have anything for a day or so. Yeah, correct. Yeah, that's fasting light. That's not for real. <laughs> I would um, have to agree. Yeah, that's I was when I first learned about it, I'm like, you just you're giving up chocolate? I'm like, that's just okay, that's it. Well plus it it doesn't have to be a food that you give up. You can oh, give up gambling for Lent, you know. I'm, gi- I'm giving up drugs for Lent. I'm giving up cocaine. Um, listen, a sacrifice is a sacrifice, right? Okay. So Hazard Regiment, Linda Hazard's regiment, revolved around basically vegetable juices and broths, like tomato juice and broth, asparagus broth, orange juice in tiny little amounts, daily enemas, which to me, like, if you're not taking anything in, what is that enema doing? Like, what is it even removing from your body? And vigorous massages that were described as pounding on the patient's back and around the head, which is really also interesting because Kellogg in his sanitarium had actually devised, and this guy was kind of like this crazy evil genius. He devised all these weird machines in which like people gave, he gave people like these little shocks, but he also devised this chair that would just, it wasn't like the massage chair that you see like at the local mall. It was like it would just pound the crap out of you. It would shake you up so badly. And so... For the record, those are the kinds of massages I like. <laughs> the real deep tissue ones. I do. <laughs> well, the funny... If I'm not bruised, you didn't do it right. Well, the cra- when I was reading this, I was like, I wonder if there's a connection to what she was prescribing and like if she had studied anything like at least and I don't know about other traditions but I know in South Asian tradition I mean if you go to Pakistan or India and you get a massage there you are absolutely coming out bruised actually Turkish massages too Mm -hmm. they will beat the crap out of you beat the crap and so I think this is similar (laughs) so she starts her own sanitarium and she's like hey if everybody else is doing it I can do it it's called the Institute of Natural Therapeutics and it had a hundred beds three levels I mean she's really upping her game. She's going big and she's international now. 
she gets the land for this through one of her, and again, many of her clients are very wealthy. And so, you know, they believe in her and they gift her things. And this guy had gifted her this property who he was a former state legislator. And apparently he also died while fasting under her care, but not before he turned over this property to her. Robbie, it wasn't the fasting that killed him. It wasn't. <laughs> um, <laughs> it wasn't that he had starved to death. It, no, it was just pre-existing conditions. It's like the early health insurance, right? Pre-existing condition got you. We don't cover that. So she opens this place up in Olala, Washington, and the locals called it Starvation Heights because they could like literally see from a distance these emaciated patients just wandering around. And sometimes they would like try to sneak them some food. So at this point, you know, she's already killed one person in Minneapolis before she leaves. Now she's in Washington. She kills about like about a dozen more die under her care. And in almost every instance, as they are getting weaker and weaker, like she manages to get them to sign over like their wealth and their and property. Powers of attorney were signed over to her. That on top of the fact that she's actually charging these patients, you know, fees to be there. So it's kind of crazy. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. But I will say this, and we'll get to this. This woman didn't just practice. I mean, she practiced what she preached. She, and, and, and we'll talk about that towards the end of the episode. But, you know, she just was enriching herself, like, through international clients as well. And eventually this leads to her downfall. This one guy, uh, Eugene Wakeland from New Zealand, he came all the way from New Zealand. But as he's being treated by her, I guess he just, like, can't deal with it anymore. He shoots himself. Well, at least that's what she says he does, but not before making her the administrator of his entire estate and took all his money. And then the case that finally brought her down and ended up with her being actually arrested was was a case of two sisters. Williamson uh, sisters, Claire and Dora, they were two British women. They were in their mid-30s, were very wealthy. It almost sounds like a Dickens novel. They had been orphaned at a young age and inherited a bunch from their grandfather they traveled a lot. They had heard about Linda Hazard, and they were looking for alternative medicine, health practices, seeking out treatments, including diet-related. And what's interesting to me here is, like, when I read that, like, they were in their mid-30s, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's around the time that I feel like I started looking into things like, what could I do to make my skin a little better? Like, up until then, I was yep. like, I'm fine, you yeah. know? But that's the age at which you're starting, like, huh, my hair is thinning a bit, and my skin's getting a little lax, and... I think we well, all. Well, they had also lost both their parents. Yeah. So they probably had a little bit of, you know, mortality fear building up there too, trying to figure out how to stay alive and healthy as long as possible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, and I write about this in my book, like, you know, all these like different like beauty treatments and diet cures and all the stuff that I've like gone through in my life. And nothing is extreme because I love to food too much to do something like this, for, frankly, but. Do, is there anything you want to share, Amber, about like what's kind of like the craziest thing you've done? Oh, well, so early in my reporting career, I had done some kind of story on the, oh, what's it called? It's not an anima. It's the... Oh, the col... What is it? It's col- yeah, the colon cleanse hoopla. Yes. I did yes. that. Um, and I was able to do weird things like that under the guise of Rep- research. Research. Okay. Yes. And it felt stupid. <laughs> just I, I like intellectually I actually want to think that there's something to that because if you're not getting all the waste out of your body I can buy that to, a, right. to an extent right. but it it just it just felt real dumb so I I couldn't I right. couldn't get on board with that Confession. otherwise this morning I tried it I once a, did you 
I tried it once and it was actually pretty recent. We were in Sedona earlier this year. And, you know, Sedona is this woo-woo, right? I mean, like everybody is woo-woo and everywhere you go, like people are, you know, have all these, like there's crystals. It's like healing in a million different ways. And I was like, you know what? Usually when I travel, I'll try to like get a massage or a facial or just something and a little treat, get away from the kids, the family. Mm -hmm. And so I scheduled myself for one and I saw on their menu that they have like this colon cleanse. I'm like, I have never done that. And I'm not going to tell my family about it. I'm just going to like give it a shot. It was, you're absolutely right. I felt ridiculous. I was like, how do I escape? But once you're in, you're in. (laughs) Yeah, it's not like kicking up. (laughs) You can't get up in the middle of that thing. It's terrible. Oh, I can't believe I just publicly admitted that. I didn't even tell my family. For weeks, I I was like, for weeks, I didn't say anything afterwards. I came back home. I was like, yeah, my tummy hurts a little bit. I just had to lie down. (laughs) And for weeks, then a couple weeks go by and I was like, I had this thing done. And they just looked at me and they're like, what are you? Why? And I was like, just, I don't know why. But anyway, at least we said, you know, we've tried it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, one of my exes always said, don't knock it till you tried it. And I, I did. <laughs> now I can knock it. <laughs> I feel comfortable that I yeah. never need to do that again. Never By the way, the funniest it. part of that uh, experience for me was I will never forget the woman going, you should chew your food better. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, my God. I think what was surreal, and I'm not even going to go into the mechanics of like what's actually happening in the moment, but it's the kind of thing that's happening where you should be left in complete privacy. Like nobody should be in that room. But this woman would not leave the room. She had a conversation with me for an entire hour. I kept thinking, this is not normal. Like you need to leave and let my body do whatever it's doing, not be here. Yes. And yeah, she yeah. was like, we do it, like you should do it every week. I was like, hell no. Anyway. <laughs> All right, back to the Williamson sisters. By 1911, they had made their way to Seattle. They had heard about the sanitarium, and that's where they went because they saw this ad. But it wasn't quite ready yet. You know, Linda was still, like, working on it, getting it together, getting it painted and stuff. But she put these women up in an apartment and began treatment. And then later they were transferred when the sanitarium was ready. Every day she gave them a little bit of vegetable broth. They got daily enemas. They got their daily massages, which were described as, like, being pummeled. And obviously, they just got weaker and weaker, couldn't think clearly. They were kept separately, so they couldn't talk to each other. And Claire eventually died after three months. Three months of this. I mean, what a torturous way to die. Now, Dora had not seen her sister, but I think Dora realized she was, like, in grave danger. I mean, she couldn't even get a—she wanted a book to read. They wouldn't give it to her. She managed to get a message out somehow, a wire out to their old governess who— was in Australia, but she manages to get, I guess, maybe one of the people working there to get this message out. And that woman shows up and she finds that Claire's dead. And Linda, of course, says that it wasn't the treatment that had done her, it was whatever childhood illness. Although when Claire died, she weighed 50 pounds, okay, around 50 pounds. And at this point, Dora herself was at like 61 pounds. I cannot even understand. No. Um, what I can't really understand, I mean, like, You know, it's not like Linda and her husband were working this place alone, right? Like, they've got people working there. They have to have, like, assistants and putting in air quotes nurses. And people are watching these people waste away. And they're just letting it happen. I, I, you know, my five-year-old weighs more than that. Yeah, exactly. And months and months are passing. And at what point... Like, what what was going to be the, okay, you're getting better moment? Right. When you 
there's there's no way to reach a level of improvement when you are not eating your I mean you said what's the enema doing probably just dehydrating further right yeah I can't imagine going through that for months well yeah I mean you're exactly right well, that begs the question the people who survive this like how do they manage to like convince her maybe they were the people who were like oh I feel great now I'm cured thank you very much I'm leaving before they got too far along enough to like lose that ability maybe that yeah and they didn't sign over their fortunes right, right. which is what actually apparently had happened here as well. She had taken their personal jewelry, taken money from them, and Linda had been made their guardian power of attorney, then signed it over to her husband. But anyhow, one of their uncles shows up and was able to kind of ransom Dora, finally let. Because, you know, now that she's power of attorney, she can decide that I'm, or, and I'm sure she was a medical power of attorney, that I'm not going to let her go. So the uncle pays her a ransom, lets Dora go. Anyhow, the British vice consul gets involved. There's an investigation. Finally, she is charged and convicted of manslaughter. Anyway, she only served two years in prison, and she was released in 1915, lost her license, granted a pardon from the governor, which is also crazy to me, gets back together with her her hubby, and they go to New Zealand. And there she starts practicing for a bit, but then she gets shut down. She comes back to Washington in 1920, starts a new sanitarium, continue the fasting. The place burns down, but not until 1935. So for 15 years, she's still operating here, which is crazy. And then the irony of it all, in 1938, she dies herself while she's fasting for some illness she believes she has. So she actually, I guess, believed in this stuff herself. She fasted to death of her own volition. Amazing story. So two of the things that I kind of like put little asterisks behind uh, next to as I, you know, in in the research that I wanted to kind of circle back to. And the first one that stood out to me was the fact that Linda was the eldest of seven. And um, I mentioned that earlier on that I wanted to come back to that. And the reason I want to come back to that is because this to me was really, <laughs> I'm drawing parallels to my book, but one of the things I learned as I was writing my book was I was able to connect all kinds of dots about people and what the relationship to food was um, as I was writing it that I didn't see before. My mother, who is still alive, God bless her, is the eldest of seven. And she grew up in a home that was kind of like, they weren't poor, but they were like lower middle class. And when you have like six younger siblings and you're the eldest and, you know, imagine like this is back like in the whatever, I guess, 40s, 50s for my mom and for Linda, this is the 1800s. You're expected to kind of be a mother figure mm-hmm. to those six kids, to the six kids younger than you. And a lot of times that will mean they eat first, right? Like maybe you don't eat until they eat type of thing. And one of the interesting things, my mom, like our entire lives would never sit down and eat a meal with us. She would cook. She would put the food on the table, even if we had guests, but then she'd just walk away. But then she would eat in the middle of the night. She was always up at three or four. And I was like, what is this about? Like, and we always thought, oh, this is like, this is her way of like, just like not wanting to be close to the family. And it wasn't until I wrote that book. And I was like, oh, she was the eldest of seven. And I interviewed her like other siblings and understood like, what was happening in the family that I'm like, I don't think she felt like she could eat. She had to like stand back, make sure everybody else was fed, see what was left over and then eat later that night. And I wonder if that was a dynamic with this woman as well. I could imagine that. I can also being the oldest of a crew like that, that it makes sense that she would put herself in a, you know, caregiver type role. 
because you are relied upon as, you know, mom number two in a lot of those scenarios. Yeah, I, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, are you the oldest in your family? I am not. I have the weirdest, um, crookedest family tree you can imagine. <laughs> so I have one full blood sibling, three half sisters, a stepsister, but her parents aren't married anymore. And also for like the last three years of high school, I lived as an only child. Wow. So you've experienced like all of it. Yeah. Every scenario feasible. Mm. I, so I, I would generally consider myself like having been raised mostly as a middle child. Mm, interesting. Wow. But, but that's, I mean, there's, I'm sure there's a lot of really interesting stories behind that, <laughs> behind all of that. My therapist could tell you so much. Yeah. I'm the, <laughs> I'm the eldest of three, but you know, I didn't, I wasn't raised like in a, in a food deprived environment. Like, frankly, you know, like we never wanted for food. So, and it was, it was a small family. Three is a small family where we're from. Seven is like a medium sized family. So, but wow. anyhow, the other thing that I thought was interesting, and this has come up a number of times, is like the strong connection that the wellness doctors made between sexuality and food, right? So, this is actually why the cornflake came about. So, Dr. Kellogg devised a cornflake basically as the most joyless food possible that would sustain you, but not arouse any of the kinds of whatever humor. I, I don't know what they call they call them humors. They call, you know, all the kinds of like kind of sexual urges that he felt that rich foods were. So he's like, you know, plainer foods like cereals and nuts curb sexual desire and then linked to disease. And so that's where that's where the cornflake came from. Joke was on him though, because doesn't <laughs> what's the sexual release is is actually very healthy. Mm. <laughs> for your body on the whole, right? Yeah. Um, I think it can protect against certain kinds of cancer. Anyway, so yeah, that sounds about right because cornflakes really are kind of the unsexiest food I can imagine. Well, apparently, and so this guy, I mean, he was not just a kind of a quack. He was like a raging racist. He went full on eugenics, like later, total Nazi guy. You can all rest assured though, you can eat your Kellogg cereal because the Kellogg's we eat actually that comes, that's a company that was founded by his brother, a different Kellogg, who decided to add sugar to the cornflake and uh, bring a little joy and also start the Kellogg Foundation, I think, to try to wipe out some of the evil shit his brother did. But I will say that this connection between food and sexuality also exists in almost every, like, ancient Eastern tradition. Hindu and Buddhist monks, like, when they abstain, they don't abstain just from food, they're abstaining from sex. And they do believe that there's a deep connection. And there's an interesting prophetic tradition among in Islam in which it says that, and, and Islam is not a religion that touts celibacy. They We do not believe celibacy is good for you. But there is this tradition that says that if a young man finds himself in a situation in which he has to be celibate, like he's away from his wife or he's just not married, whatever, that he should fast because if he fasts, it will also help control like his sexual urges, which I thought was interesting. So I don't know. I mean, like, I maybe there's something there. I I, I have no idea. It must be that men are just raised entirely different because something about a rich meal does the opposite. <laughs> <for me. laughs> it puts us to sleep. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know what they say about oysters and stuff. Um, yeah. So anyway. 
Well, all right. So that's it for this. I mean, I look forward to the episode in which you do a much better job covering this in a narrative, um, fascinating way with your with your interviews of experts and stuff like that. Amber, I'm, I'm, you, you better do this story. I would actually love to. I think it's I think it's absolutely fascinating. And for what it's worth, 100%, if somebody's listening to this episode and they haven't heard the narrative story, it's great. And it's so different because yeah. you have brought in these modern elements that with the social media postings and stuff like that, I really encourage. Oh, you mean the uh, out the Nighty Night Undying yes. Hunger story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's and also I should say you might not want to keep this in, but I was kind of avoiding Nighty Night because I thought it was true crime. And I had so much fun listening <laughs> to oh. that I'm now I am now into it because I, I have to stop listening to true crime. It's what I do all the freaking time. Yeah, so yeah. hearing this story like translated into fiction was strangely joyous, even though it was creepy. <laughs> Well, thank you. I'm glad you are now listening to Nighty Night. I hope you enjoy it. I'm um, sorry. We have, we have <laughs> amazing. Like no, I love that you're plugging my show on my show. This is amazing. Okay, I mean, like, what else could I ask for? <laughs> we have amazing writers. I get. I've written a couple of the episodes, and I hope you definitely check those out too. And uh, right now, we are. We've got all these stories lined up for the fall, and I'm writing the premiere episode. I'm pretty excited about that. But listen, there's kind of no way to escape it because almost all of our stories are inspired by like some real life, true crime events like this one. And so, all right, Amber, tell us where we can find you. Um, and once again, tell us about your podcast so everybody can listen to them. Well, I'm at Reporter Amber on Twitter. Um, I am also <laughs> accused podcast on Twitter. I, I just work a lot, so you kind of mm. have to find me. Centuries com is the website for Crimes of the Centuries. That's the one that... Is that seasonal or is it just year-round? A little bit of both. Like I'm in season two, but I also didn't really have a, a more than a few weeks off. Okay. Uh, so I have like 42 episodes a year, wow. which is okay. is pretty. I'm hoping, and, and the, the more support I get on this front, the more possible this is. I'm hoping to do it until I'm dead because I really, really am enjoying that far more <laughs> than I would have expected. Yeah. I just really like learning things and being able to... Like I didn't fully understand the labor movement of the early uh, 20th century until I began researching the crimes that came from the desperation of the workers. And so mm. all of it to me is really fascinating. So it's a whole education. I mean, this is why I, I love the show so much. It's one of my favorites. I It's on my like, you know, regular rotation. And one of the things I love about it is most of the episodes I can listen to like with like my 13 year old too. There's a lot of podcasts you kind of can't, but this one you can. It's true. It, it's funny because one of the criticisms you hear as a true crime podcaster is like, don't censor the gory stuff. Well, actually, what I do is I make a point to only put in as much as you need to understand the story because I also recognize that these are real people and yeah. their grandchildren don't need to hear the uh, 911 call unless there is a purpose to including it. So I'm I hundred percent. I'm much more interested in like walking away from a true crime story feeling educated rather than grossed out. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. All right. So both your shows are like ongoing right now and live. They're being reported. Well, yeah. Yeah. I awesome. I I just shift. I take one hat off, put the other one. Is on. book number seven I, in the works? Book number seven is in the works. It's going to be a crimes of the centuries related book. 
Oh my God. I didn't, I had no idea. I just thought I'd asked that on a whim. That's amazing. I'm, I'm Congratulations. really about it. Thank you very ah, much. That's awesome. Congratulations. All right. Thank you so much, Amber, for joining us this week. And guys, check out her show. And again, stay subscribed. We are not too far away from our fall season. We have a, a few more of these Story Behind the Story episodes coming up. And then we're going to be also taking a little bit of a break before we start season two of Nighty Night. Thank you guys for tuning in this week. Nighty Night is executive produced by Rabia Chaudhary and Colin Thompson. It's produced by DJ Lou Bell. It's sound designed and edited by Anton Doty. Original music by Andrew Gerlicker. Nighty Night is a cast original podcast. 